This is a story of Esther, her uncle, whose name is Mordecai. I know I'm standing a bit in your way, but never mind. Um, the king... an extension on the crown because I knew he had a big head and it still doesn't fit. <laughs> and of a bad man called Haman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Esther was very beautiful. Her uncle was good and very caring of Esther. Let's see, world spectacle. Worried that you people aren't seeing the difference. Okay. The king was very powerful. has a gold stick and only people who he points the stick at can speak in his presence. <laughs> I hope you'll let me speak. <gasps> Thank heavens, otherwise it would have been the shortest story of Esther that you have ever seen. Okay. As well as his gold stick, the king had a gold ring. the gold ring at the end of the gold sash. The ring had the king's name engraved in it. If any law was made with the sign of the ring, that law could never, ever, ever be changed. That's how important the decisions that the king made were. It, it meant that the kings usually thought very carefully about the laws they were making. But as you'll hear later in this story, this king, though very great and powerful, was not very good at thinking carefully. And then we have Haman. The only great thing about him was how bad he was. So here's the deal. The lands the king ruled over were vast. I'm going to get you all to move right forward to the front now. Right. The king and his predecessors had conquered many bordering countries. Over a hundred years before this king was even born, one of the countries that had been conquered was Israel. So now there are many Jewish people living in the king's land. They were the descendants of the Israelites who'd been captured all those years before. It was not a good time to be Jewish in the king's land. Many people, especially Haman, hated the Jews and made life hard for them. So many Jews hid their identity from non-Jews. Now here is the story of Esther, her uncle Mordecai, the king and a bad man. The story starts with the king. This king loves a feast. And, and a drink. He loves a feast so much he has two of them. One lasts for months and they're all about showing off how great he is. But his wife doesn't seem to understand just how powerful he is. And he, she won't obey his every command. So the king uses his gold ring, so he's very cranky, and he lifts up his ring to send out a law that the queen is banished from his presence forever and also that all women in his whole country must obey and respect their husbands. The king then starts to miss having a queen, but he can't change the law. So he decides to set up a bit of a competition to find a new queen, 
a competition that's a bit like a modern-day beauty contest. And this is where Esther and her uncle come in. Uncle decides to enter Esther into the competition. It will be an amazing opportunity for Esther, who is orphaned with only her uncle, to protect and look out for her. But Esther goes into the competition with a secret. She is Jewish. Okay. But Esther keeps that to herself. And no one knows that Mordecai is her uncle. Because unlike Esther, some people do know that Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai spends a bit of time hanging around the king's court and he even intervenes in a plot to kill the king. He really has the king's back. He can now stand behind the king. Yeah. Okay. Well, the good news is that Esther wins the competition and marries the king, so she goes and stands next to the king. Right. Still, no one knows she is Jewish. But the bad news is that Haman, the baddie, is also in the king's favour. So he's also very close to the king. And Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew and he hates Mordecai because Mordecai won't show him respect. Haman talks to the king, who we know tends to act a bit on impulse, and talks to him into giving him the ring. Haman uses the ring to make a law that all the Jews in the land can be killed and their property taken from them. And to set a date for doing this, Haman rolls a dice, literally. And the date that the dice rolls, lands on is the 13th day of the 12th month, almost 12 months away. 12 months of agony for the Jews and for Mordecai. Esther. Haman was very pleased with himself for being able to use the king's ring for such an evil plan. But Mordecai goes into deep grief. He puts on sackcloth to show he is in mourning. But there is Esther, still by the king's side, with no, no one knowing that she too is Jewish. Unlike the king, Mordecai doesn't make quick decisions when he's feeling upset. Instead, he starts to think and he realises it is possible maybe for Esther to intervene on behalf of the Jews. So he goes over and talks to Esther. At first, Esther is like, no way, Jose, my neck will be on the line if I say I'm a Jew. But Mordecai reminds her that she has special access to the king and that this may be the reason that she won the beauty contest in the first place. So Esther agrees to do something to try and save her fellow Jews, even though she knows she may perish in the attempt. The king does have a pretty terrible temper. But this is where the tables start to turn. We now see another side of Esther. She is beautiful, but she is also smart. Esther knows that the king has already made a law that all women must obey and respect their husband. Esther has to come up with a way to soften up the king. But remember how the king loves to feast? Well, Esther herself holds a banquet for the king and she includes Haman in the invitation. Okay, so they're very excited, yes. Filled with a sense of his own importance because of his special invitation to Esther's banquet, Haman goes one step further in his badness. Haman decides to kill Mordecai, even without waiting for the 13th day of the 12th month the appointed day of slaughter. One day, he builds a giant gallows to hang Mordecai from. 
He still has to get the okay from the king to do that, but he thinks it's a done deal and he'll do that in the morning. But during the night, well, no, no, we don't do that yet. (laughs) These characters, they just get so much into part. You're bad, but you're not that bad because you haven't asked the king's permission yet. Okay, fine. During the night, the king just happens to remember that Mordecai is a pretty good chap. He has not yet been rewarded for intervening in the plot to kill the king. In the morning before Haman can ask for permission to kill Mordecai, the king asks Haman how to honour a man who has served the king well. Mordecai, thinking it is... uh, Sorry, Haman, thinking it is him who the king wants to honour, devises an elaborate royal procession of honour. He is shocked when the king orders him to organise the procession in honour of Mordecai. The tables are turned again. The king goes back to his place. Mordecai has, has, um, removes the sackcloth and, in, and a royal robe, which is right behind you, that blue and white one, Haman has to give it to Mordecai to wear. Haman is furious about this. He really doesn't want to do it, but he does. <laughs> Come on. You have to. The king's told you. Right. So the royal robe is put on. Haman is the person who had to give it to him. It's all looking pretty good for Mordecai, but, and it's a big but, the law to kill all the Jews is still in place. Esther's been softening up the king, but she's still not asked him to save the Jews. Summoning up her courage, Esther holds a second banquet with the king and with Haman, who wave around their goblets. They've got another one coming. This time... She reminds the king that there is a law to kill all the Jews and she reveals she is Jewish. Okay. Esther pleads with the king and asks if he can find any way to save her. And she adds, by the way, if, he, if it also save her fellow Jews, she'll be very grateful. The king, as usual, acts on impulse and starts looking for someone to blame for attacking his queen. When he's reminded that it was Haman who used the ring to make the law, the tables are really turned over. The king not only removes Haman from exercising power by giving back the ring, he orders Haman to be hung on the same gallows as Haman had built for Mordecai. So, off you go, off you go. Off you go. You just go lie down somewhere because you're dead, okay? You just go down and lie down, okay? He even gives Esther, the king even gives Esther all of Haman's property. But that still leaves the problem of the law, the law that all Jews are to be killed. Remember, once a law has been signed with the king's ring, it cannot be changed. And the 13th day of the 12th month is getting closer. This time, the king gives Mordecai the ring and tells him to sort it out. So Mordecai comes up with an ingenious plan. Mordecai makes a new law that says if any Jew is feeling threatened on the 13th day of the 12th month, they can attack and kill their enemies and keep their property. And when that becomes known, well, you remember back at the start of the story that Esther hides she's Jewish? Well, now the Jews in the king's land no longer hide if they are Jewish. And more than that, the non-Jews start to say they're Jews because they're really, really nervous of what the Jews may do. Now everyone wants a badge like Mordecai to wave around. And the enemies of the Jews are right to be nervous because at the appointed date the Jews do attack their enemies. But though they're permitted to, the Jews do not take the property of those they slay. And so this story, the book of Esther, ends with more feasts. This time it is the Jews who are feasting, not just Esther and Mordecai, but all the Jews in the land. 
But unlike the feasts of the king, which is all about showing how great he was, these feasts were about the Jews rejoicing because they got relief from their enemies. They rejoiced because their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning became a day of celebration. The book of Esther finishes as it begins with an account of the power of the king. Behold, yes. But this time there is also praise for Mordecai because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. There is no mention in the final part of the book about Esther's part of saving the Jews, but at least the book is named after her. The end. So that's our Bible reading for today. Um, a couple of the people who were part of the study group uh, are now going to help us with their insights. So Bron and Tina are going to join me up here to see what, uh, see what they've learned because I'm pretty confident that what they've learned will be of real benefit for all of us to hear. So, Bron, firstly, for you, and we need your microphone on. Yep, good. Yep, yep it's good. Talk. Yep. Um, Bron, what do you see as being the differences between the time that Esther was living through and the times that we find ourselves in now? Yeah. Um... I'm not in any way saying that we don't have a problem with violence in the, the um, culture that I'm living in today, but I do know that when I was driving to church today, I didn't see anyone on a gallows hanging and I didn't receive an email from um, the government last week telling me to turn on my neighbour and massacre them either. Um, so the amount of sheer violence in the story um, appalled me. <laughs> Um, so that's a big difference um, to, to how I live today. Yeah. Um, do you want me to say Yeah, else? so what, what, what do you draw from that, though? What, what does it mean for the way you live your life? Right. Well, um, when I was thinking about it, I thought the big difference is Jesus. Um, as I know, the Jews had the Ten Commandments and they had, um, you know, you shouldn't murder people. Um, but having that... Having that example of somebody who's being crucified, forgiving people, of um, telling us to turn the other cheek, um, you know, loving your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I think for Christians today, um, just putting a lot of love on people is important because you hear the, the saying that hurt people hurt people and you wonder what happened to Haman in his life to make him <laughs> end up like that. But I, I think the opposite can be true is that loved people love people. So if we all you know, make it our, our um, you know, our job in life to lay out a lot of love on people, even the people we don't find very lovable, then, you know, we can make a little bit of peace in our own corner of the world. Now, you've got the Bible open there. Yep. Did you want to tell us about a verse that stood out for you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty violent, horrible verse. Um, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, who assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies... They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And, yeah, that stood out to me just because of the time. Like, they killed a bunch of people one day and then feasted and had joy the next. And um, I know if I see something particularly violent on the news, I might not be able to sleep and I get quite anxious um, but, yeah, the fact that they could just then turn around and feast and have joy was very interesting to me. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Bron. Now, Tina. Hello. What do you see as being the similarities between the times that Esther inhabited and the times that we're living in now? Yeah, so one of the main uh, similarities that I see is that a lot of the characters like us are dealing with uncertainty. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the choices we make. 
How do we know that the choices we're making are good choices or wise ones? Especially when we don't know how, what, how, how it might end up. There's no way to know how one choice can ricochet, ricochet out into the world and what impact it will have on others. And, you know, you have a person like Haman who, despite all his planning and scheming to kill the Jews and get at Mordecai, he ends up being the one who gets killed. And so um, here's the similarities between our world and Esther's. Um, despite all this uncertainty, though, we're still asked to make choices. Um, and even if we don't know what the end outcome might look like with a lot of those choices. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Ron and Tina. So let's come before God in prayer. And this is a prayer of uh, the great Christian leader, Martin, Martin Luther King, and helps us prepare for the challenges that we face. O eternal God, out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being, we humbly confess that we have not loved you with our hearts, souls and minds, and we have not loved our neighbours as Christ has loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go the first mile but dare not travel the second. We forgive, but dare not forget. And so, as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But you, O oh God, have mercy on us. You forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. We pray that you will give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will. Give us the devotion to love your will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's get ready to worship God in song um, with the song Breathe On Us and it's all about letting our hearts awaken. Let's stand. He's wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry, my bad. Apologies, sorry. <laughs> you there is a shaking that hearts awaken. Our God is moving, forever changing us. A trembling, there is revival, the sound of worship, so great and glorious. Holy
please be seated. Amen. So, um, Elin and Tina. So, one of the questions that came up in our study group is about what we can learn from Esther, from the book of Esther, about the choices that, uh, that we make. So, Tina first. Um, when, particularly, Tina and I were the people who led the Bible study, and we had quite a few discussions about, uh, about the content. So, in our discussions, we talked about the tensions involved in the choices that Esther had to make. On the one hand, it was about let God do everything. Mm. And on the other hand, it was Esther doing things by herself. Yeah. And what, what did you learn about, um, about the choices that Esther made? I think it's a paradox that a lot of us Christians face um, when we make choices. Sometimes we're tempted to think, oh, you know, leave it all up to God. You know, he's in control. And along that thinking, we can start thinking, okay, there's nothing for me to do here if I just leave it all up to God. Um, you know, it kind of tempts us into lacking initiative if we start thinking along that path. And then you have the other extreme where, you know... <laughs> You think it's all up to you and, you know, you start bearing all the responsibilities for the choices you have to make and it can be really crippling um, if you start thinking about all the implications your choices can have on people and, um, you know, and it, it, it can paralyse you with fear. And so, you know, we see that in Esther. Um, she had a big choice to make, a lot actually, and she was up against a lot of things. Um, you know, once she decided to act, the fate of the people rests on what she chooses to do next. And so I think what Esther chooses to do actually gives us a glimpse of what faith looks like in action. How do we hold these tensions and still know what the right decision is to make? She's dealing with a lot of uncertainty here because she can still go to the king she can, use, she can have all the right execution in her decisions and st things can just still go so terribly wrong because that's what it's like to live in this world. Nothing really ever goes to plan. And so what does she choose to do? Actually, the first thing she does after speaking to Mordecai is to ask all of her people to fast on her behalf. And she fasts herself. And I think this is such a crucial detail in the story because... If she just decided to just rely on all her on her own and her ability, um, her skills to change the king's mind or change the circumstances, she probably wouldn't have seen the need to fast. And if she just decided to leave it all up to God, she might have said, well, I didn't really need to do anything. Or, you know, so what does she choose to do? She chooses to fast, and I think that's an expression of her posture in humility. Um, it's her acknowledgement of her limitations as a human, the limitations of humanity. And in face with that, she decides to surrender whatever outcome to God. Um, and I think it's, it's encour it encourages us to, despite the uncertainty of knowing, you know, are our choices good, is it wise? I think if we start off with the posture in acknowledging our limitations and that leads us to trust God, rely on him and his power to deliver, I think that posture of humility is the beginning of wisdom. And so I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Thanks. That's, that's great. Now, for those of you who don't know Elin, she's had to make, she's made some big decisions recently. Moving to Sydney from Melbourne, Big decision. Changing jobs. Even once you got to Sydney, you had one job, but uh, the change to another one. Big decision. So, Elin, what have you learnt from the growth that you saw in Esther as we read through the book of, of Esther? And what does that mean for you? Um, I think that like Esther, we sometimes find ourselves in a situation that we don't understand or have no control over or maybe both. Um, and like Esther, we have a choice to make. How will we respond? 
Um, and I think what's interesting in the book of Esther is that we see that um, even though God has a purpose for her, he doesn't necessarily need her to fulfill his plans um, and that if she had chosen to go her own way, God would have used someone else to fulfill his purpose. And so we see that in chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai, her uncle, says to her, if you remain silent at this time, um, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, um, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And so what I take from that is that wherever I find myself, God will have a purpose for me and he can use me. And it's up to me how I respond, and my response um, will have an impact on those around me. Fantastic. Thanks, Ebene. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. So now is the time for us again to come before God in prayer. Let's pray for the people of church in the marketplace. Lord God, you've placed us here in this place. We know that you have plans for us as individuals and as a church. So help us to be faithful to those plans, to listen and obey. Lord God, there are people amongst us in our, in our community that are going to camp next week. Some will be worshipping here, some will be at our church camp. So we pray that you'll bless our camp, that it will be a time of, of fellowship, of creativity, of deepening understanding of you and a, an opportunity to, to reflect and to reboot and to renew so that we can, um, we can be your disciples. We pray too for the people who are worshipping here next Sunday, that it will also be a time of renewal uh, them. Lord God, there is uh, a national election coming up. There's a lot of talk and a lot of promises and a lot of um, policies and there are some decisions that we need to make uh, about the sort of government we want, the sort of country uh, we want. So bless us with wisdom and we pray particularly bless our political leaders with wisdom. And we pray that, uh, that as they seek to govern, they will govern for all of the country. We pray that as they seek to govern, they will seek to bring our country together rather than to split it up into different factions. We pray particularly as they seek to uh, govern our country that they would have real care for the least amongst us. Lord God, we know of the, the tragedy and the, the terrible situation in Ukraine. We know of the tragedy and the terrible situation in Afghanistan, although we might have forgot that one just a little bit. And there are places where there are also terrible things going on that we don't know much about. But we have confidence that you are sovereign Lord, that you are a loving Lord. And we pray for those places, those situations, that your peace would come uh, and that the people you call upon to act will act mightily in, in those places. Well, Lord God, we're also conscious that tomorrow is Anzac Day, that for many people it will be a time of real sadness, a time of regret, a time of trauma, So we pray for them. We pray that there will be people around them. We pray that they will, they will be able to find peace amidst upset. And we pray for the rest of us that we can give thanks for people who were prepared to serve our country, that we can give thanks for people who were prepared to, to live beyond themselves for the sake of others. We also give thanks that we have not experienced wars like those that, that many of the people that we celebrate had to take part in. We give you thanks that uh, we enjoy peace uh, and we pray that you will help us to be your peacemakers in this world.
In the name of the Prince of Peace we pray. Amen. So we're going to learn a new song. And it's about the goodness of God. So Lucy's going to uh, particularly help us with this, uh, with this new song. Well, I'll try. Um, <laughs> uh, you make a song. <laughs> yes, this is a really, really lovely song. The verses are a bit tricky with the rhythm, but the chorus is pretty easy, so I reckon you'll pick it up and we'll sing it. We'll, the chorus gets sung a few times, so. Uh, please stand up and uh, we'll sing this together.
lovely singing. Please take a seat. And thanks, Lucy. Thanks for uh, a song that no doubt we're going to be singing a few more times uh, in the not too, uh, not too distant future. So, Tina joins us again. And one of the questions that comes up is, what resources did Esther call upon to face the, uh, face the challenges that she had? Um, so we've talked a little bit, you've talked a little bit about that in the earlier um, question about there was fasting, there was calling upon her community to, to join, join with her. And you've also talked about the tension between um, taking action and handing over to God. So what did you learn from what we've studied in Esther? What's relevant to your life? Oh, um, if I might first uh, share a framework for another framework for understanding, you know, how to understand the choices we make. I kind of want to share the bit about the two trees in Genesis. What are they doing there? You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you also have the tree of God that leads, you know, and, he, and, it, and that God gives life through. They eat of it, they continue to enjoy his providence and life. And God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, otherwise you will die. Now, what has that got to do with the story of Esther? Um, it's really interesting, guys. Um, <laughs> so, um, I think all throughout the Bible, God always chooses to work through people. He never works apart from us. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, he, he created this good world and he chose to share the responsibility of stewarding it with us as humans. And I think the two trees represents how are you going to go about doing that? Are you going to seize from the knowledge of good and evil? Are you going to define what's good and bad on your own terms? Is your decision-making and the choices you make, is it going to go down that path? Or are you going to take a posture of humility where you realize your limitations as a human and your amazing need for God? And through that, walk past that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and take of God's tree, eat of his wisdom and not rely on our own. So <laughs> um, I think that's a useful way to tie in the themes right from the beginning and what it means to be human and what God's purpose and plan for all of us is, is that he always wants us to partner with him. He's constantly saying, choose me, um, eat of me, come to me. Um, because in base your face, faith, not on your limitations and what you see around you and your circumstances, don't take meaning from any of that. Um, look at me, I have a plan. I can thwart, it's, I'm, I'm speaking in the place of God, <laughs> I can thwart the intentions of the evil ones and use it for good. That's how amazing and almighty our God is. You know, you can see that at the cross. You know, all these people, they had their scheming plans to kill Jesus because they thought he was the blasphemous one. And God used the evil purposes, purposes and turned it around for good. Amen. So if we're riddled by fear in our everyday lives and it sometimes influences the decisions we make, um, let's use the story of Esther to encourage us to always draw near to God. It's okay if you have problems. It's okay if you're faced with so many limitations because we give that to God and he can turn it around. He can turn anything around for his good purposes, especially for those who love him. So let's turn to God more often. <laughs> Amen. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. One of the fun facts is the word God doesn't appear in the book of Esther. That doesn't mean that God's not there. It's just that we, we need to work it out from, for ourselves. We need to do some of the heavy lifting. As we studied, we discovered that all of the characters in Esther are flawed. Esther was flawed. Mordecai was flawed. Obviously, the king and Haman were flawed. 
Um, and remember that um, that uh, that myself and uh, and Alex were actors. We really weren't the king and uh, <laughs> and Haman. So don't take it out, take it out on us after. But the heroes of the Bible are flawed, apart from Jesus, David, Moses, Abraham. Um, you know, they're all all flawed flawed people, and God chooses to act through them. Esther was a flawed person, and God chose to act through her. Um, and but it was about her being prepared to be available. One of the verses in Esther that really stood out stood out to me is when Esther says, if I die, I die. So Mordecai challenges her to step up on behalf of the people. And Esther makes, makes that statement. What a bold statement for a, a young woman um, from a minority group in a vast empire to make. And as particularly over the time of Easter, I think those of us who, and leading up to Easter, those of us who are part of the group saw the the parallels that I think Tina has also just pulled out about the parallels between Jesus and us. Jesus, alter, and, and Esther, sorry. Jesus had his, if I die, I die moment. He didn't want to die. He asked for the cup to be taken away from him. But like Esther, but in a, fa- in a far more cosmic way, Jesus, um, Jesus stepped up. So Esther took risks in order to do the right thing. The question for us out of Esther today is what are the risks are we prepared to to take to be disciples? Yes, Esther had a few things going for her. She was gorgeous. She had a wise uncle. She lucked out in marrying the, the king. But she still had to take some enormous, enormous risks. Our lives don't present nearly those challenges most of the time, but we're still called upon to take those risks in the same way that, uh, that Esther did and, and look for the sorts of solutions that, that Tina has just told us about. So let's pray. And this is a prayer by somebody who took enormous risks. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a fantastic Christian uh, before and, and during the Second World War and paid for his discipleship with his life. So let's pray. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. You know all of our troubles. You abide with me, when all people fail me. It is your will that I should know you and turn to you. Lord, I hear your call and I follow. Help me. Amen.